Welcome to Speak Up for Safer Care. I'm your host, John Sims, Director of Safer Care Texas, and with me is our Assistant Director, Leanne Cunningham, and our co-host. Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening today. This is our first episode entitled Patient Safety Defined. Safer Care Texas is the Patient Safety Division of the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth, Texas, where it is our mission to challenge traditional thinking to eliminate preventable harm. Speak Up for Safer Care illuminates gaps in care, process, or design that lead to preventable harm in all healthcare settings. Please follow us via our website, safercaretexas.org, and on social media via Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Let's get started. Our guest today is Jessica Mock Rangel. And good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you, Jessica, for being here. We're glad uh, to have you. Absolutely. So Jessica is a patient safety expert. She is a recognized, distinguished fellow of National Academies of Practice. She has a fellowship in evidence-based medicine. She is a certified change agent, a certified master's team steps trainer. She has a bachelor's of science degree in nursing and a master of science degree in strategic leadership. She has many, many, many accomplishments. Some notable ones are that she led a team with Safer Care Texas to create the nation's first certified professional in patient safety, our CPPS course in a medical school with an astounding 90% pass rate. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Jessica also served as the system patient safety officer for a large healthcare organization during the Ebola uh, virus crisis. And her strategic leadership uh, during that crisis received international attention. Currently, Jessica serves as our Senior Vice President of Clinical Innovation, leading five departments, including Safer Care Texas, our Simulations Department, the Health Science Center, uh, HSC Health, which is um, cl uh, medical clinics, uh, primary care clinics, and uh, specialty clinics, correctional medicine, interprofessional education and practice. She's also our boss, an innovative leader, our colleague, and our friend. So, Jessica, again, we are honored to have you uh, talk with us for a few minutes today. Well, thank you for that fabulous introduction. I sure appreciate you both very much. And I'm excited to be here to talk about something I am very passionate about. So thank you. Absolutely. You are very, very passionate about patient safety. I have uh, I have uh, followed your uh, leadership uh, since I joined the Health Science Center and uh, will continue to do so. I just much respect. But let's let's jump in here. Sure. So. Many people might, um, if, you, if you ask a, an organization or a leader in an organization, hey, is patient safety a priority in your organization? Most people are going to say, absolutely, it's a priority. But can you explain to our audience what that exactly means? What would an organization who prioritizes patient safety, what would it look like? I think that's a great question because you're right. No matter where you go, I suspect a healthcare organization, anyone would say, absolutely, we prioritize that. But that can mean different things to different people. And so I think it begs the question, then what is patient safety? And I want to talk a little bit about that, if that's all right. Absolutely. So 
we all think we know what patient safety is and we're all right. Um, the big piece of patient safety that I want to bring up is that patient safety, frankly, is the recognition of human frailty where we want to be able to apply 100% safe care at all times, not only to our patients, but even to our, our colleagues, our Ooh. healthcare workers. We want to always do the right thing, right? Sure. So what gets interesting is in patient safety, yes, we put measures in place to assure that our patients receive safe care. They receive excellent care. They receive um, information that they need to make good choices. But if we take a step back and we recognize a little bit more about patient safety, we have to sort of peel the onion here if we could. Um, on one hand, patient safety is the front end of risk management. It's a continuum. And I really struggle with considering one without the other because wouldn't it be an awesome world if we didn't even have to deal with any risk management issues because all of those things have been mitigated or eliminated on the front end. Sure. And that is the task of patient safety. So patient safety, we do have to recognize that we're human and who delivers care? Humans, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and Deming said, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. So when you consider how we deliver care, we recognize that there are processes or you can call them procedures or steps that we take in order to make things happen. And oftentimes it's the humans that are doing that. Now, what are some examples of not, right? right. So back in the day when I was a baby nurse, I do recall when we gave medication, it was all about the double checks that we did with the patient and the paper trail. That's mm -hmm. what it was about. Nowadays, we have barcode medication administration that takes some of the potential error making out of the equation because it requires we scan the patient's wristband, pending that that wristband is the correct wristband for that patient. Uh -huh. We oftentimes even say to the patient, can you tell me your name and date of birth? And how often have we had to do that? Mm -hmm, sure. <laughs> Every single yeah. time. And then we scan the medication prior to giving it after we verified it on the medication administration record. So I know I don't have to go through all the steps with you all, but what we have done is we have begun to eliminate some of the steps in the system that created error making in the past. And what that does is really look again at human frailty. And what I'm talking about is when we go deliver care, mm -hmm. what happened before you came to work today? Did you have breakfast? Right. Did, did, you, you, did you sleep good? Did you sleep well? Yeah. Absolutely. Did you have a fight with someone, with your kiddo? Are you battling depression yourself? Mm -hmm. Are you fatigued? Because by golly, it is the Christmas season and you just have no time to do all the things that you want to do during these holiday times. Th those things weigh on us. Mm -hmm. We can't deny that when we come to work, we typically have a bag of our own stuff mm -hmm. that we're bringing to the job. Multiply that by the number of caregivers that we have around us. And with that, we have to stop and realize we may not be on our A game today. We may not for a multitude of reasons. 
And when we have days like that, we need to assure that we have systems in place that can mitigate our humanness, Hmm. if you will. Sure. Human touch is important. I believe in touching your patients. I believe in talking to them. I believe in being empathetic, sympathetic. I believe in really partnering with your patient on their healthcare journey. But I also believe if I'm not on my A-game, I need to look at you, John, and say, man, I'm just not feeling it today. Mm -hmm. You got my back today. If I'm really struggling today, can you help me out? So what I'm doing as a clinician is recognizing my frailty, my ability to not be perfect Mm -hmm. and leaning on you to help me fill the gap. Patient safety runs that way, mm-hmm. I feel like. Um, tell me what your thoughts are on that. My thoughts are, and I, I absolutely agree with you, my thoughts, I, I can't help but drift back to the pandemic. And all of those things that you described mm-hmm. are, I mean, that's that's almost our norm. People are, they're staying fatigued. They see they no are. end in sight. And so I think about... Um, the psychological safety that one must have to admit, hey, I'm not on my on top of my game today. Yep. Have you got my back? Mm-hmm. Because that might show a sign of weakness. And I think there's an opportunity there to intensify that culture to make that a, a welcome admission uh, in the name of patient safety. That's You're absolutely right. The, all those human factors, those are human factors that we're talking about, fatigue or Let's go back to the pandemic because we're knee deep in it and it's not going away anytime soon that um, we have colleagues who are struggling with daycare or concerned because their children are too young to receive the vaccine and they feel unsafe, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What can we do to mitigate that? I think we have to have real conversations about that because when they come to work, our patients expect and deserve top care error-free care. So going back to the Deming example, where or the saying where um, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets, it calls for us to take all of this information we just shared and look at our processes. And is there an opportunity to determine spots within our process where maybe we have a double check that's put in place. Or for, again, I go back to that barcode medication administration um, system. Those make a tremendous difference in medication errors. And John, you remember in your clinical days, how many errors did that potentially catch? It never reached the patient. Oh yeah, absolutely, it caught some. Now I will say, uh, that it, there is always an opportunity to look at the system and to revise it because there are still some errors that occur with the barcode system. But you're absolutely right. The days of us taking the the medication administration record in the room and doing three med checks, you yes. know, that was the standout. Oh, yeah, it's it's absolutely changed yes. um, medication safety in that regard. Yes, but always an opportunity. It is an opportunity, and I think we have to think of new ways all the time in which we can mitigate our human factors Mm -hmm. that can lead to harm 
and as a result, create systems where it's it's nearly error free, if not completely error free. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited about that because even we think of our engineering partners, boy, do we need clinicians who know engineering. We need some biotech. We need to understand better mm-hmm. how to implement things that can make it safer for patients. So I, I'm excited. We're leaving. We're living in a very incredible time where these questions are being asked. And patient safety is really something that we we all talk about, we should continue to talk about. And getting back to your question, when someone says, yes, my organization, uh, it keeps patient safety a priority. I wanna challenge you that let's talk about the principles of high reliability organizations and high reliability organizations, as you know, John, are are like the nuclear power plant, Mm -hmm. our airline industry. They really follow the five principles, which are fabulous. And we can talk about those at some point if you like. Sure. But the piece that is near and dear to patient safety is sensitivity to operations, which means that Of course, you can ask someone who's perhaps not touching patients, is patient safety a priority? And it it may be, but go ask the people who are touching the patients every day and ask them, tell me what you do every day that Mm -hmm. keeps your patients safe. Mm -hmm. And then I would challenge everyone to then ask, what's the next big thing that's gonna go wrong? Because they can identify for you where we have a gap in our processes that we could probably mitigate, enhance, change, improve the process to where we eliminate a chance of someone being harmed. So absolutely, I I think patient safety um, through many of our credentialing organizations like Joint Commission, patient safety is a priority. And when they go and do accreditation audits, it's exactly what they're looking for are some of those patient safety pieces. But it's something we should all have in place. And you, as you know, in our primary care clinics, we consider patient safety a top priority. And what does that mean for us? Well, if you were to ask any of our frontline con- clinicians, which you and I both jump right into care. That's right. We like to ask a name and date of birth and confirm that the record that I'm looking at is who you are. And we correct any errors if there's a something that's not correct. But um, even if 18 times in a five minute segment of time, we ask name and date of birth. Yes, we got it. Yeah, there are gaps that just that's how we close the gap. Mm -hmm. So it's really important. And I think that primary care has a beautiful opportunity throughout the nation Mm -hmm. to begin to implement patient safety checks. And at first, it doesn't feel very convenient because sometimes it requires an extra step. But part of that is looking at the system and eliminating unnecessary steps. So it makes it much easier for everyone. Boy, I tell you, that is a very thought provoking and um, and very thorough um, answer to how we can prioritize uh, patient safety. Um, Amazing words from patient safety expert. Absolutely. Leanne, um, what, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I have a question. I know I've been in the department with you for about three years now, and I know that you have many years of healthcare experience in various settings. If you would, could you share an actual or a near miss event in one of those settings? If it's HIPAA compliant, 
if you would, please? <laughs> sure. Great question. Another great question. Well, because I want to continue to honor HIPAA, I want to honor uh, patient privacy, um, I can give you a general discussion. How about that? And that we'll works talk for me. That. Can you tell us what happened? Sure. And I think in general, um, one of the risks that we take some time, and in fact, I think John and I would call it a workaround, is the practice of sharing passwords mm. within an acute care setting or any setting where there's an electronic health record. Um, it could be in the medication machine uh, that we have to put in a password or a double check. But sharing of passwords um, is the elephant in the room. People want to believe it doesn't happen, and I can assure you that it does. I've seen it. You're absolutely right. And, and it's not bad people. It's not bad clinicians. But sometimes our processes or sometimes variables come into play that people want to take shortcuts. Right. And so as a result of that, what we're doing is compromising patient safety. So, for example, um, medication needs to get a double check, okay? And we have someone say, yeah, just use my log on, and that's your double check. And the individual, the first individual goes ahead and utilizes that particular person's log on as a double check, administers the medication, and it's the wrong medication. Mm. There's an error. And that's an actual event versus a near miss. Um, is that a common occurrence? I would wouldn't say? say that's common. Um, I say it happens okay. for sure. And what makes it challenging is that a medication error happens. Person number one who actually administered the medication and error is no longer present. The other person is. And they're called in to say, hey, we noticed this medication error. Can you tell us what happened? They know nothing. Mm -hmm. they but know they shared their password. They shared their password. And so it makes it difficult to get to some of the immediate root, uh, root causes that we might be able to address. Mm -hmm. But what it does bring out, it's another root cause, is that it begs us asking that clinician, what were you thinking at the time that your colleague asked for your password? What was going on? Take us back there. And John, let's let's role play a little bit. Okay. Okay. So John, you gave your password to Nurse X. Mm -hmm. What was going on that day that you felt like you needed to share your password? Oh my gosh! You know, there it was just a very fast-paced day. We had like ten procedures, and this this physician was just honest. He was snapping his fingers. Let's bring the next patient in. I simply didn't have time, so I was trying to be efficient. Okay. How common do you think that is? Please tell me it's uncommon. <laughs> Pressure is very common, yep. especially during this pandemic. I think um, for acute care systems, um, they've really been challenged during this pandemic because if they don't have clinicians that are out illness, um, they may have clinicians that are coming in and they're absolutely exhausted because they're working short staffed mm -hmm. and the patient load has not stopped. And if you consider the emergency departments in particular, they don't get to close their doors. Mm -hmm. It has to be a very unique situation for them to close their doors. And because of federal and TALA laws, patients mm -hmm. 
need to have their emergency medical condition ruled out by a physician. So here we are. We have open doors, we have short staff, and we have incredible pressure mounting on our clinicians. So we have these external factors that can force a medication error, an actual event. And so John's dead on with mm -hmm. it's exactly how that conversation would go. Mm -hmm. And there's much regret. Now, did John set out to harm a patient? Absolutely not. Is John human? Yes, he is. And that's what patient safety does. It forces us to look face to face with human error making. Not that John is a bad person at all. He's mm -hmm. not. In fact, he's an excellent clinician. But he had tremendous pressure and he thought he was doing what was right for the patient. And sometimes it absolutely does not work out that way at all. Very much like the new normal we're living in. It it's is the reality. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. So so in this situation, how do you handle this this John process where he has shared the password with Nurse X and it has caused this issue? What happens next? What's the outcome? Uh, great question. Uh, a robust analysis of what went wrong is essential. And to John's point earlier, we have to be careful to create psychological safety. And this goes on to the question of culture. You can have a very punitive culture. Mm. So let, let's walk through that. A punitive culture would say, that is a terrible nurse, that John. He needs to be fired. Mm. He broke a policy, fire him. Okay, that, that's quite punitive, but it doesn't eliminate the fact that the variables that led to the error, they still exist. We have not mitigated them. In fact, we've ignored them. So it's easy to blame, punish, mm -hmm. eliminate. And that's not healthy for patient safety at all. On the other hand, we could go blame free. Well, John was doing the best he could. Sorry, John, you know, yeah, hope things go better tomorrow. Oh, no. We're still not addressing the fact that he had tremendous pressure, sick patients, acuities too high, not enough staff. We've now ignored that as well. And we end up having a very permissive culture. But at the very end, what we hope to have is what you are leading us to is a just culture where we do take the time to look at the whole incident, everybody who was involved, let's sit around the table and let's talk about it, create the psychological safety to say, everything you say here is confidential, but we wanna fix what went wrong. Now, it doesn't mean John's not culpable for breaking a policy, and we have to address that, but we need to understand what led him to that event. And we also need to talk to Nurse X to say, tell us why you felt like you needed to do that. And again, I suspect the same variables mm -hmm. would be in place. But the outcome of this is we fix the systems that led the incredible clinicians to make an error. And then we deal with the clinicians about how do we address this with you? You know, what do we do next? I think that that, that communication is very important with building the trust because you know, in the example that you shared and then our role play, um, had there not been a medication error in, in, in my role, I probably, well, I definitely wouldn't have disclosed that I'd shared my password. It was only because something occurred that I, that I needed to, uh, to share that. So can you talk a little bit about um, normalized deviance and what that means? 
Sure. Um, normalized deviance. I mean, we experience this even in our own lives. Like, think about our driving. I don't know how you guys drive. I drive like a little grandma, which I am a little grandma, but <laughs> and I can say that. We know that little icon that comes on that tells you you're under driver fatigue. Yes. That's oh, it me. comes up. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. But we can talk about it in that context. So, Normalized deviance, it, it, in the definitions, it's, it's an in incremental process that gradually adjusts your perception of what is safe, okay? Mm -hmm. Meaning that at some point we're doing something unsafe, but it's normal to us. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your driving, Leanne. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just say you're on Chisholm Trail and you're used to driving 80 miles an hour. Okay. Are you behind me? I know. I probably am. I'm just saying. Guilty. Okay. But at some point, Chisholm Trail slows down to 60 miles an hour as it comes into Fort Worth. But you have never been caught going 80 through there. You've never had a crash going 80 through there. Nothing averse has ever happened to you as a result of that. So here we are four years later. And you're still going 80 miles an hour. But have you increased your risk? You betcha. You bet you have. You're going to tell me that all good things come to an end eventually, aren't you? <laughs> I'm telling you, you should go 60 miles an hour. <laughs> I, 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 I will while I'm weaving, apparently. <laughs> but that's really, we get that normalized deviance. So let's go back to the example earlier in the clinical setting that um, we were visiting with John about. So... John's been at this particular organization 10 years, and so has Nurse X. They've always shared passwords. Nothing bad has ever happened. So even though we know policy says, I'm not supposed to share my password, we're doing it, even though it's a workaround, even though I'm feeling the pressure. But it turns out, even when I'm not feeling the pressure, hey, just log me in and as your double check. So all of a sudden that becomes normal to us and it doesn't happen overnight. It's just this slow incremental, Leanne starting at 65, 70, 75 miles an hour, 80, and it creeps up on us. So normalized deviance can get us into this perception that everything's okay and safe when in fact it is not. Kind of like the frog sitting in the boiling water. Is that true? I, I, I heard that wasn't true. <laughs> you heard that wasn't true? Well, I mean, I'm not going to try it. But. Well, certainly not going to try it. But I mean, you know, the analogy works, right? I mean, you're sitting there. You don't feel that it's that it's too warm. Yes. You know, kind of like being in a swimming pool. And then you die. Yeah. You know? Right. So there's harm. Um, yeah, that that's uh, that's excellent. I appreciate that. Um, so could you could you give me a little bit more on cognitive bias? Sure. Um, it's an it's considered an error in thinking that leads you to this misperception of information you're receiving in your environment. And what that means is things. Let me get. It, it's easier to give you an example that affects your judgment. So I'm a 20 year old female. I wish. Me too. I, I really uh, athletic. I run marathons. I look great. I eat right. I have no past medical history. I'm having chest pain. Mm. Okay. I'm under a lot of stress and stress. You're not having a heart attack. You're 20 years old. You're healthy. Oh, wow. Bingo. Yeah. And then I go home and I die from a massive MI. 
That has happened before in the nation. It has happened over and over again. Oh, you're too young. You're too healthy. You're too this. You're too that. And that we've created a cognitive bias in this example of what young, healthy, athletic females can and cannot have. We're stereotyping all over again in a way. We are. We are. And it's very, very dangerous to do that. But again, patient safety requires of us to recognize our frailty. We are all subject to cognitive bias. All of us. Just like if you see someone who's morbidly obese, and that's the technical term, not an insult. Sure. And you see them walking along the sidewalk, you feel like you have to watch them really closely. Mm-hmm. But guess what? They could be in a lot better shape than you are sitting in your car passing them by. Again, we have this cognitive bias. And of course, I gave the weight and age per, uh, perception, but there's many, many, many more that cognitive bias leads to mistakes, errors of omission, errors of commission. But those two, those two examples prove that bias because, again, 20-year-old, female, healthy, no issues, dies a heart attack, morbidly obese individual, absolutely has to be unhealthy. It's you're absolutely. I didn't think about it like that. That's a great example. You know, I I think about like a bell curve, and you know the the um, high percentage of medical errors. It's really a small percentage if you think about it globally, but lives are being changed, quality of lives, and sometimes it ends people's lives due to medical errors. But if you put everybody in that what sixty eight percent of the of the main distribution, and then you forget about you know, the tails of that bell curve, that's where we need to focus. You know, that that's where we need to to really not rely so much on our, um, you know, our knowledge and experience, but what that individual patient is telling us and then investigate accordingly. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, and it goes back to, again, the basics of healthcare, where we just have to listen. And that is patient safety. So I'm looking at you and I'm determining, I'm making determinations as a clinician already based on, you know, how healthy your skin looks, the color of your skin, meaning that is it pink? Is it gray? Are you pale? Um, and, and Leanne I'm is not. And tired. <laughs> Leanne is not. But, but, but we make, we're always taking in information as clinicians. Mm-hmm. We do that, um, Leanne. We, yeah, the nonverbals and the verbals. Uh, Again, I've worked with you for three years, and you do you do that across the department and the division. There are moments that you catch things and say things that are only, excuse me, only in our minds. You bring the reality forward, and it's like you're right. I don't really feel that well. I I probably should go home. I can't tell you the numerous times that I've been sent to priority care because you've caught something that I wasn't willing to admit. So, I mean, it does happen. And we're more cognizant of it now that we are back in the office from COVID. We got really comfortable sitting at home in our pajama pants. And if we didn't feel good, we we worried about it later. Here we're back. We're, we are a, a workforce that has diminished in, in employee personnel. We're trying to get new employees, retain the employees that we have and things happen. It's nice to, to know that as clinicians, y'all have afforded us, that, afforded us that opportunity to see things that we might not want to 
have said, if you will. Correct, correct. But at the same time, Leanne, I think John would agree with with me, we're going to challenge you as well because you're not a clinician, but you have an important role in patient safety. Amen. I agree wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. So think about it. We talked about it a little bit earlier before we started the podcast about you've been a consumer of healthcare and you've also been a caregiver. And so you too could probably give examples of patient safety issues or maybe where patient safety saved you or someone else. I think that um, it's everyone's responsibility for sure. And the thing I love about patient safety, it's eclectic. It's not just about patients. It's about right. we're looking out for each other. Mm -hmm. I'm looking out for you, Leanne. I'm looking out for you, John. And I want to create the environment for you all as well. If you're not on your A game that day and we have somebody's health in our hands, let me know you're not on your A game and I got your back. And that's that wonderful team steps um, approach Amen. to how we care for people. Yep. Absolutely. So, Jessica, what do you think our most uh, significant opportunity is uh, to, produce, to reduce patient harm from medical errors? Um, the question for me is what can't we do? You know, what can we not do? And, 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 and there's, I mean, the slate is wide open. We have so many things that we should be doing and could be doing. What I would ask is think about the basics. Again, going back to the basics. Um, one of the pieces that I think we've missed the boat on, and it's time to get on top of, which Safer Care Texas has been absolutely on top of it, um, health literacy. Mm. Let's quit producing materials that only an MD, DO, PhD can understand. Amen. Let's produce Agreed. materials that anyone can understand. Um, I think we, we are becoming a mixing pot of ethnicities. I think it's important for us to also recognize that just because you speak English to me does not mean you can read English. But even within our own population, how many people do we have who are functionally illiterate? And they're too embarrassed to share that information with us. So let's, let's be human again. Let's say, Leanne, I just went over this consent with you. Tell me what you understand about the procedure I'm just about to do on you. And you may say, um, I have, I'm not really sure. And that's a beautiful opportunity for me to engage you and say, okay, well, let's talk about this because you may not know what a, a uterus is. Let's talk about what that is. And I think foundationally, if we can address health literacy in all populations, you might see an, an incredible boost in patient safety. So people understand what's about to happen. So there's no misperception that people have informed consent and informed consent, meaning they understand what's about to happen and can fully appreciate the risk and the benefit of what's about to happen and get to say, yeah, let's do this or say, I'm not ready. So I think from a patient safety perspective, even simple things like that, um, think about that apply to the patient in the hospital that you're about to discharge. Mm. Now you're talking about say, my passion. There you go. <laughs> and let's, uh, you know, 
talk to me, John, a little bit about medication at discharge. Where do you, you know, health literacy opportunities? Well, I'll tell you, um, I, uh, I flew uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday, and while I was sitting there, bored out of my mind, I was looking at all the things that they did for safety. You, they all get the little, you know, charade game that they play to tell you, hey, here's where the oxygen mask is. You've got a, uh, you know, a, a cushion under your seat that works as a flotation device. Well, I pulled out the trifold um, instruction manual, and you know, there were pictures and arrows, very few words, mm -hmm. but anybody with any language could understand where things were and what they needed to do. And I thought that was very powerful. That is incredibly powerful um, mm -hmm. because, and, and that's really where we need to be going with all of this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, back to the health literacy piece within medication. So again, just because one reads, or excuse me, can speak English, doesn't mean they can read it. So we send patients home and we say, Leanne, do you understand these medications? Do you understand you can't eat or drink XYZ with this medication? Yes, I understand. Have you repeat it back to me? Hint, hint, another team step piece. But have you repeat it back to me what you understood? But when I send you home, you go get your prescriptions filled. There's four bottles. There's four bottles and your health literacy level is very low. I don't remember exactly what goes with what. Exactly. And the labels. Can you even read the labels? Maybe you don't understand the labels. Now take our geriatric population and yes, put them there. I'm handing you four bottles and I'm telling you that you can't take meloxicam with ibuprofen 800 milligrams. But you've got, you've got those bottles and you know that you need to take them. You just don't know how. So you take them together. Exactly. Now we have a problem. Well, and, you know, for older adults, and I'm one of those, I can tell you that it's getting more difficult to even read the writing on the bottle. It's tiny. It's minutia. So I, I think that that also requires that interprofessional approach where you tell me who your pharmacist is or your pharmacy of choice, and I can call them up and say, for Miss Leanne, could you please print it in Vietnamese? And could you make the letters larger? I mean, all you have to do is partner with your pharmacy mm -hmm. partners, and they can help make this a much better journey. But we have to start talking to each other and going back to the foundational piece of recognize human frailty, not just our own as clinicians, but as consumers. So let's talk about even for uh, women's health, mm -hmm. you know, postpartum mortality is outrageously. It shouldn't happen, quite frankly. Should be a wonderful time. It should be a wonderful time. But when a doctor says, if you have X amount of pads full of blood, that's when you need to call me. Well, that's how full is full? That's a, you know, depending on who you ask, that term can vary. So we have postpartum hemorrhages that, that are unnecessary. And so we know that one of our Safer Care Texas members mm -hmm. has created What About Mom app. Uh, mm -hmm. That is pictures. You can download it from the website. and Very health literate. Yes, 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 yes. yes. And that is just the beginning. So I'd like to challenge any administrators, clinicians, even consumers of health that go, I have no idea what this document is saying, to challenge your organizations, your clinicians, whomever, 
Can we make this more readable? Can we just do it in pictures? Is that possible? So therein lies what I think we need to do foundationally, one of many, many, many things, but we need to stop not talking to people. We need to stop just handing people off. We need to journey with them. That's how patient safety happens. I, I love it, Jessica. You're absolutely right. Human frailty and health literacy. If we can identify those two things, I think we can make a huge impact on patient safety. Um, we're getting close to the end of time, but I want to know just real, real quick, what inspired you to study and, and understand patient safety? What a wonderful memory that that question brings back for me. Um, I remember uh, in the 80s, I will reveal, um, before I became a nurse and I was in nursing school and each unit that I was working in required that we had to do quality checks. And mind you, I'm in nursing school, I'm about to graduate. And the charge nurse said, Jessica, I don't have time to do this. Could you do this? And I said, absolutely. What is it? Just show me the way. And I, I had a little bit of fear, a little bit of imposter syndrome, like I'm not a nurse yet. I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to figure it out. Yeah. And uh, But she explained it very thoroughly. Here are the things that you need to look for through these charts. And she opened my world because when I realized why some of our quality outcomes were not being met, and I would look back through these charts, I recognized if we had done X, Y, Z, mm. this could have been better. Wow. And that's, that's what planted the seed in the 80s. And this is before we were marching around talking about everybody must be patient safety, high reliability. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what planted the seed. And so um, I, I feel very honored that that charge nurse delegated that to me and it opened up the world for me. So patient safety, that's when it started. And then um, after many years, I, I came to Texas and there was a chief nursing officer who said, I noticed you have an eye for these kinds of things. <laughs> How would you feel about? And um, I took her up on it. And it has been just such a blessing ever since then to be able to serve in that way. Well, on behalf uh, of Safer Care Texas, I want to say thank you. <laughs> Amen. Well, and and, and me you. too. That's a, that's a great uh, story. I, I never knew that, but that's awesome. And you've, like I say, it's been very awesome to watch you, um, I mean, grow, especially in this university, and how you've thank taken you. patient safety and empowered our teams to um, to be innovative and, and to create solutions for healthier communities. I just think it's awesome. I love what you shared today about human frailty and, uh, and health literacy. Um, can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here today. And on behalf of Safer Care Texas, Jessica, I want to thank you for coming. I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with us. I want to encourage all of our listeners to speak up. Become an advocate for yourself, your family, your colleagues. Safer Care Texas, we want to hear from you. Please be our guest. If you're a healthcare worker, a counselor, a subject matter expert, a former patient or a caregiver, if you have a patient safety story that's HIPAA compliant, please, please contact us. Contact us through our website at www.safercaretexas.org or as a reminder, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram. Thank you again for joining us, Jessica. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. 